Welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, and today my co-host Dr. Reed Robison and I discuss mescaline. We begin by humbly admitting that we are not mescaline experts, but we do our best to provide you with some interesting and useful factoids nonetheless. Like we've done with our other psychedelic compound topic episodes, we review the history of mescaline, its mechanisms of action, some therapeutic applications, and much, much more. Uh, I'm also going to keep teasing that we got big changes coming to the show, so they're coming soon. Please continue listening. We're really excited to bring you even more awesome content with awesome people. So without further delay, please enjoy our episode on mescaline. Well, here we go again with another episode of Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, uh, continuing our series on um, different psychedelic medicines, different compounds. How are you doing today, Reed? Excellent. Uh, how about you, Steve? Happy Friday. I am also ask, excellent. <laughs> Happy Friday to you. I'm so glad it's the weekend. I'm uh, headed out to the the MAPS MDMA Assisted Therapy Training uh, course, I guess you call it. You're in Colorado here pretty soon. So I'm excited to do that. Uh, and today yeah, we're I'm excited gonna... for you. Thank you. Yeah. This has been a long time coming. <laughs> I, I got, I got into the, I got into the maps training cohort a year ago and I had to defer because we were going to horizons. Um, and then I got in again and I waited too long to confirm my registration. And so they, they were, they didn't have any space. And so anyway, uh, the universe conspired in my favor, though. I'm really excited to go out to Colorado and learn from Marcelo Odolora and Bruce Poulter and uh, hang out in the mountains at the, I think, it, what is it called now? The Drala Mountain Center? It used to be like the Shambhala Mountain Center. Oh, cool. Yeah, I've always wanted to go there. Um, had my eye on it. I know it, uh, like many meditation sanghas, centers, uh, was, you know, the subject of some kind of scrutiny, reconfiguration, um, and I guess a much needed, uh, you know, shoring up of, of boundaries among teachers and, and everything else. But that one's been a classic kind of um, beacon of meditation light in the mountains for, for decades, I think. Yeah, well, you know more than me. I'd never heard of it. So I'm, I'm really excited to be up there. The pictures look incredible and kind of Spartan accommodations, which I like. I don't need to be at like a five-star hotel for this kind of thing. I'm, I'm going to take my little flute up there. I'm going to do some meditation in the woods and learn how to do MDMA assisted therapy. Mm -hmm. No, that's, that's amazing. Um, I loved my MDMA training. It was not only practically like informative and useful in terms of like therapy, psychedelic therapy skills, but it was really touching like the people who show up there show up with such meaning and authenticity that uh like you know i i shed uh many a tears um as part of this uh kind of collective emotion we were feeling through the process mm -hmm. yeah you know authenticity and vulnerability and transparency these are personal values of mine. So I love being in spaces with other people who share the willingness and the desire for that kind of connection. So yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Well, I hope you find some peyote buttons while you're out in, in the wilderness. 
<laughs> Maybe I will. That's a wonderful se- wonderful segue into our uh, our topic today. We decided we would tackle masculine, and in the interest of transparency and vulnerability and humility, I will admit that um, I don't know a whole lot about this medicine. So did a little bit of homework for this episode, and of course, like each of these topical psychedelic uh, compound episodes, we're not going to go into incredibly deep detail, but we'll skim the surface and hopefully provide our listeners with some interesting tidbits about, about, uh, San Pedro, peyote, Wachuma, mescaline. Well, I too am a self-proclaimed expert in nothing. And, uh, <laughs> you know, while I have experienced, uh, mescaline, uh, ceremonially on, on several occasions in far off lands, um, and had, uh, really meaningful experiences. Um, I definitely do not pretend to be an expert. Uh, you know, it's, what's funny, just a, an aside, I, I spent some time with, with our colleagues up in Canada recently and our, our fearless leader, Peyton, CEO of Numinous, uh, told me how much he didn't, didn't love the title subject matter expert. So I've got a kick out of that, uh, out of that sense. And, mm-hmm. um, I'm glad that we all uh, try to embody this this um, attitude of humility and and admitting that uh, we all have no idea what the hell we're doing, but we all are walking each other home and trying to figure it out as we go. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and now people are wondering, like, well, why why the hell am I listening to you guys if you're not experts? <laughs> but uh, I, I I like what you just said because none of us really know what's going on that you quoted the the line from that movie everything everywhere all at once where um and I, I ended up watching it finally with my wife and it was such a powerful movie so visually stunning and deep and emotionally evocative but you know there's mm-hmm. that moment in the movie where one of the characters everyone's freaking out and fighting and trying to kill each other and and he says something to the effect of like none of us knows what's going on. And when we don't know what's going on, it's important that we're kind. Um, yeah. And that just like struck me to the core. It's that's it, man. Like <laughs> none of us really know what's going on. So why don't we, can we just be kind, please? That, that sums it up. I love that. And, uh, you know, I didn't intend to quote that movie, but it was full of poignant one-liners that, uh, were sticky to the heart. So I'm not surprised if it, if it spilled back at you uh, just now mm-hmm. accidentally. Um, um, and I will admit that uh, I do know how to study a study, test a test, and digest the literature. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I'm an avid uh, reader of of both the, the scientific uh, fun facts around these medicines and the, the historical anecdotes I find fast, just as fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, the admission that subject matter experts, a little bit of a gross phrase is not to say that, that one can't accumulate knowledge and skill through dedicated practice and study. Um, and you know, I think there's that, the old adage that the, the more you learn, the more you learn that you don't know. Um, Reed and I have tried to learn a lot of stuff, which is one of the reasons we started the podcast to pay that forward and share that stuff with you folks. So admittedly, we don't know everything and we are humbly and, and very, very grateful for, uh, for you listeners and for the ones, for those of you who leave us comments and send us emails and, uh, leave us reviews. We're, we're really thankful. 
Do you want to hear a uh, a yoga tangent story just for fun and for no other good reason? I'm always down for a good yoga <laughs> tangent. Okay, so there's this yoga pose called Bharad Vajrasana. Maybe I will spell it in the show notes um, because I know it's hard to imagine what that word, uh, how it's spelled. But and I I demonstrated if I weren't sitting in a in an awkward office chair, but um, it's a yoga pose, like many yoga poses, with a fun story behind it. Because uh, legend has it, um, eons ago there was this troop of warriors in India walking along the banks of the Ganges, and they found this kid. This kid was sitting there like in meditation, shining like a diamond. And a voice from the sky says, this kid is divine, take him in. And so the the troops did. They raised him as their own. It's kind of a already a funny story, and that's not even the story. But um, he became one of the greatest Hindu sages of all time. The name was Bharad Vajra. Um, you add asana and it becomes a yoga pose. And But he had this thirst for knowledge and ability to learn that he he wrote the freaking Ayurveda, the ancient text on life longevity. He And as uh, also the spirituality legend has it, he would um, die and get re- reincarnated. And each time studying, memorizing more and more, um, digesting the Vedic texts. And then so he, he but he keeps getting reincarnated as this sage and it's starting to become a little frustrating because i guess there's this idea that you transcend some of these these cycles eventually so on one of his incarnations he's born a sage getting greater knowledge than anyone ever has uh but then shiva lord shiva pays him a visit and says um and he's like thinking oh this is awesome my studying pays off i'm finally going to transcend cycles of of what I keep incarnating as, and maybe I'll be who the hell knows what. Um, but Shiva says, he picks up this dirt and he says, see this, this dirt represents what you've learned in one lifetime. And he picks up another handful of dirt. This is what you learned in your next lifetime. But then he points over at the Himalayan mountains over in the distance. He says, see those, that represents the whole of knowledge. And it would take you thousands of lifetimes to master. And you may have gotten smarter than anyone else, but you know what? who the hell cares? You haven't shared it with enough people. Therefore, your life has no meaning. And then, boof, Shiva's gone. Barabhadra dies. But the next time he comes back, and he's not only a great sage, but this compassionate teacher. And he starts educating countless students. They're all coming towards the end of his life to honor him as their teacher. And Shiva shows up at this celebration and says, good job, dude. You you did it. It was through sharing your knowledge that you truly finally became alive. I like that because it's, it's through sharing knowledge that I feel alive. Um, you know, I, I, it's one of the favorite things that I do. I've been a teacher for as long as I had stuff to teach. And as a, as a therapist, it's a type of teaching, you know, it's, it's walking a journey with somebody, of course, but in facilitating, uh, and then this podcast, just sharing stuff, albeit imperfectly, uh, makes me feel alive. So thank you for sharing that. That's <laughs> I, can re- I can relate. Not that I've reincarnated a whole lot that I'm aware of, but that you know of, huh? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, that's. I mean, that's the real reason I brought it up is because I, I believe we're both um, coming at this from a stance of a desire to share. Um, 
good information, as best information as we can um, get our hands on, assimilate, integrate, experience, uh, iterate on um, for the love of, uh, you know, our shared collective journey um, through mental health and wellness and spirituality. So. Yeah, exactly. Well, in that spirit, let's talk a bit about mescaline. Uh, so what is mescaline? As far as I can ascertain, it's a naturally occurring psychoactive alkaloid, most commonly found in a couple of cactus species, notably the peyote and San Pedro or Wachuma cactus species. I guess it's been found in other cactus species, but those are the ones that most commonly come up. Yeah. Yeah. Like the Peruvian torch is another source of it, but, but uh, the interesting thing is the peyote is the slow growing cactus um and i think ritual use with uh peyote cacti peyote buttons for example dates back hmm like at least a thousand bc um mm -hmm. and then uh and then the faster growing san pedro um or this like columnar thing aka wachuma is uh the other main source but but there's Bolivian torch and Peruvian torch and others. Yeah. I, I read one, one, uh, one place where some archeological uh, evidence suggests that maybe as, as far back as 7,000 years, the people have been playing around with cactus um, ceremonially in the U S Mexico, Peru areas. Yeah, it has, uh, has a really um, fascinating history. Um, that covers the whole gamut, like the spectrum of, uh, of, I don't know, there's some heartwarming stories and some really, uh, heart wrenching ones too, with regard to, mm -hmm. um, kind of what's happened to indigenous cultures through the years, um, that we may, uh, meander to as we go. So I guess that's, uh, both of, a an observation and a, a disclaimer, but, mm -hmm. um, and trigger warning perhaps, but, but, uh, mescaline as the grandfather psychedelic does have a deep history. And, um, even in the scientific realms, um, predated in its study and led to, uh, uh LSD and others in terms of getting synthesized, characterized and studies studied. Yeah. So why don't we take a sort of a meandering jaunt through the history and, and share some interesting tidbits and facts. It won't be completely linear, but, uh, you know, first, first isolated in 1896 by German chemist, Arthur Heffer, Hefter, and then later synthesized in 1919 by Ernst Spaff. Yeah. The, uh, Hefter, Hefner Institute, um, is one of the big psychedelic, uh, research organizations, uh, um, carrying that name, mm -hmm. Arthur Hefter. Hefter, yeah. Um, and then you know, between the 1940s and 1960s, it was uh, I heard that it was used by American and German military as a truth serum of sorts. They were researching it along with other psychedelics or, or compounds as uh, for its its <laughs> exploring its possible quote speech inducing effects, which is a, a classic like. <laughs> it's like, like military thing, uh, speech yeah. inducing. It's like calling torture enhanced interrogation or something like that. Yeah. Um, interesting, uh, thing I came across not too long ago in the literature on, on mescaline was 
that uh, there was this one study before it was really well characterized as a psychedelic where it was given to dogs. Uh, so they gave it to a dog in a lab and then it proceeded to like wander towards the corner of a room and bark at nothing in the corner, like, which was uncharacteristic of it. And they're like, wait a second, is that dog hallucinating? Like, mm. what are they seeing that they weren't before or that we're not? Yeah. And did that then lead to the, the, there was some research on whether mescaline, and I think they did this with other psychedelics, but whether it uh, could be a good analog for psychosis so they could give it to people as a psychotomimetic and, and then be able to study what it might be like to have schizophrenia. Yeah. Yeah. They, uh, this was early 1900s. Um, they, they, it was first studied, um, well, mescaline rewinding to like before the turn of the century, there's like 18, 90 or so um i think or yeah the 1890s a company called park davis um after someone had taken it uh, i think it was maybe hefter's descriptions like whoa that made my heart race they're like okay cool our product cocaine is getting some slack on the market and we might need an alternative so they uh they started selling it as uh an alternative to cocaine um and like as a tincture as a cardiac tonic um but it didn't it didn't take off <laughs> yeah it's funny to hear of these drugs like the early life of some of these drugs um you know cocaine in particular like sigmund freud apparently really loved cocaine um but yeah and we're starting here in the 1900s you you mentioned you know, some of the more ancient history. Um, and I didn't read this in great depth, but I know that, uh, you know, when, when the colonizers came to the continental Americas, to the Americas, that, uh, one of the things they did was sort of try to wipe out the indigenous use of psychoactive substances, peyote included. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where the history gets, um, gets really sad because when uh during the spanish conquest um the religious and ceremonial use of uh masculine containing cacti like especially peyote it was widespread in the aztec empire northern mexico um when the spanish arrived they saw it being used as a sacrament and they saw that people were having visions on it. Um, mm -hmm. And they considered this to be work of the devil, and it got banished into the underground. So um, they, uh, yeah, so there's, I think one of the the more troubling stories that I came across, have you heard of the, the Wounded Knee Massacre? Yeah. Yeah where it's just this tragic tragic uh m murder of like 300 Lakota people by US army soldiers in the in the late 1800s um and you know around that time communal singing and dancing got banned on reservations and so the the peyote ceremonies moved to secrecy like it would take place in teepees then where the participants would sit or sit in a circle and eat dried peyote buttons and all night long they would uh pray uh 
work with tobacco, one of the master plant teachers, incense, sing songs, pass around drums and a rattle. And that became like this microcosm of a, like the, the world, the vanished world, the world that was ripped away for them, kind of like a, a way of preserving their culture and identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in, in the modern day, we have the American Indian Religious Freedom Act amendments uh, in 1994 that protect the religious use of peyote. And I think for enrolled members of the native American church, right. Uh, NAC. Um, and of course it's, it's decriminalized in some cities like Oakland, I think. Uh, but still the lots of, lots of government control around the use Mm -hmm. of ceremonial medicines. Yeah. And, uh, circling back to your um, initial comment around this masculine as this model for psychosis. Um, mm-hmm. It's interesting that uh, like Hefter and others noticed early on that there were varieties of the experience. Like someone famous early researcher said that made me extremely anxious. That was kind of crazy stuff. And the other one's like, whoa, colorful apparitions, loss of sense of time, beautiful. Um, uh, but then they did these formal studies like in the early 1900s where they would give it to healthy volunteers and compare the experience with psychosis or schizophrenia and like, Hmm, might not be the same. And then they gave it to people with schizophrenia or like, Nope, that's not like schizophrenia. Um, so, which is kind of interesting because, um, other studies of other psychedelics, uh, it's a hard thing to tease out, but, but there are certainly some similarities, um, between the psychedelic experience that's, uh, brief and temporary. And the experience at the height of a psychotic episode or exacerbation with the psychotic illness. Yeah. Yeah. What would we say are those overlaps, right? You have um, possible visual and auditory hallucinations, right? Seeing things and hearing things that aren't necessarily there. Um, You might have uh, paranoia. You might have delusional thoughts. You might have synesthesia. yeah, some of these these more common psychotic symptoms you might also experience on a psychedelic like mescaline. It's essentially the positive symptoms. In schizophrenia, the these uh things that happen are often divided up into positive and negative. Um positive being like the hallucinations uh as an example, and the negative being the withdrawal from society, like the um reclusiveness that can come along with it the catatonia for example and uh that's certainly not even though you know it might seem like it in in moments and in the varieties of the psychedelic experience is certainly not characteristic of an experience of on psychedelics is becoming like truly catatonic or um for example right i I love that part where they they gave it to people who you know, actually have schizophrenia and just, so is this what it's like? <laughs> no, man, this is different. That's a, <laughs> that's a fun way to do, fun way to do a study. Yeah. And, uh, and then there are the classic, like the most famous trip report ever written, uh, perhaps, uh, Aldous Huxley's doors of perception, um, was about when Humphrey Osmond, psychiatrist from Canada, friend of Aldous Huxley, came over in what, 1954 or something like that to Aldous Huxley's house. Aldous Huxley's wife was present. Um, and, uh, Humphrey Osmond dosed him with, uh, 
with 400 milligrams or so of, of mescaline. And, uh, and that became, you know, in his, with his poetic craftsmanship, uh, just a trip report to go down in history. Yeah. I read somewhere that there's, there's, I guess, some controversy around, um, how blind, uh, Huxley was at different points in his life because the reason they were talking about it is, you know, he, he gives a lot of this rich visual descriptions, description of visual imagery, um, in doors of perception. And then, uh, some people say he was, he was for at least some periods of his life due to like keratitis or whatever it was called, but, uh, was fairly blind. Have you ever heard that? Um, uh, well, I've heard a little, but I don't have a good answer for it other than it is, it does bring up the really interesting question of, of, uh, do you need, uh, eyesight to see visions of, uh, of a psychedelic experience and certainly not, not all of them. There's a pathway that is overlapping. Like we've talked about before, you know, it might be lighting up the same brain areas, but you don't need the same like optic nerve pathway and kind of retinal stimulation. Um, but no, I don't know the answer on, on the state of Huxley's vision. Um, yeah. It's just interesting to me because as somebody who, as a psychologist, I'm not a neuroscientist, I'm not a neurophysiologist or anything, but you know, sensation and perception are really interesting because it, it, it kind of all ends up in the brain anyway. So in order to quote unquote, see something, you need, photons hitting your retinal nerves that stimulate this part in your brain. But what if you receive direct stimulation of that part of your brain, arguably you see things, right? You perceive things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mean, okay, here's another tangent. Um, because this is what, uh, struck me in my neuroscience journey. Like that was my undergrad kicking off this, uh, this lifelong study of trying to understand like the brain and behavior. Um, but what struck me early on is that we, you and I never truly see the same thing. Like we truly do um, observe, like we take in different realities because um, what you see and what I see, even if we're staring at the same wall in the same museum or same room, goes through our neurons, our optic nerves that are different because we have different anatomy. And they go through these neuronal pathways and hit these brains that were highly shaped, not only by our individual genetics, um, thanks to our respective parents and uh, genetic mutations thrown in the mix along the way, but also every experience that's that we've ever each had throughout our lives. So when we're looking at the same thing, we are not actually seeing the same thing. And uh, um, I think it's relevant in the sense that uh, like Huxley talks about the doors of perception. I think it was a, what a William Blake quote that he drew this from about if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear as it is infinite. Um, but they are, our doors of perception day to day in this default world are not in fact cleansed and perfect or, or the same. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting tangent. We could probably do a whole, <laughs> a whole episode on that kind of stuff. Like how is, if we're all seeing things a bit differently, how do we like build buildings and drive and, you know, agree on what, how, how long an inch is. And I don't know, just kind of 
weird, fun questions. We we don't we fight about it all, and mm-hmm. uh, we cancel each other and we we duke it out and we start wars. Yeah, I guess. Um, but uh, coming back to the task at hand, I remember hearing a comedian once say that uh, Aldous Huxley took mescaline and he probably wanted to write a book called my whole brain is melting uh over and over ten thousand times but then the book critics made him call it something more poetic (laughs) well i guess we should make the statement the mescaline will not likely melt your brain um you know most of the research there isn't a ton of research on on mescaline but most of it um suggests that like other psychedelics that are similar or are slightly dissimilar psychedelics it's relatively safe with an emphasis on the relatively yeah yeah it, it so mescaline shortly after the the uh aldous huxley famous trip um alexander sasha shulgin had his first mescaline trip in like 1960 or so and that is what set him on his lifelong journey of kind of discovering and documenting characterizing so many other psychedelics even mdma like he synthesized it after discovery in a pharma lab Hmm. yeah wow was that that wasn't was that the first psychedelic he'd ever taken or i don't really know much about shulgin's history it it may be it was definitely like it's it's cited as his most uh transformative one or the one that kicked off the journey i kind of assume it was but i don't know for certain um but he he wrote those two books uh fecal and tical and um, mescaline is a phenethylamine um, Mm -hmm. um meaning it comes from the amino acid phenylalanine uh compare that to the tical book tryptamines i have known and loved that shulgin wrote um because others like lsd psilocybin dmt come from their tryptamines and they come from the amino acid tryptophan instead of phenylalanine. So here we have, you know, different sort of classes of psychedelics that still, for the most part, uh, act on similar receptor sites, right? A lot of the psychedelic effects of mescaline still are, can be at least partially attributed to that 5-HT2A serotonin receptor activation, right? Yeah. It's an interesting one because it hits 5-HT2A, like the other classic psychedelics. Mescaline is a classic, classic psychedelic, but at a much, much lower affinity than LSD. Um, as you can see by the different doses needed, you know, you mm-hmm. might take um, 200 micrograms of LSD and have a very significant trip, but, you know, 200 milligrams, like a... Um, you know, orders of magnitude different. 200 milligrams of mescaline is not a very strong trip. Right. Right. And then it's, it's, it's got, uh, I'm looking at my notes here cause I don't have this stuff memorized, but 5-HT1A, alpha-2 adrogenic, ad, adrogenic, I can't even say Adrenergic. That. Adrenergic. There you go. Um, and then it's got some dopaminergic and histaminergic activity as well. Yeah, so it's it's classic like the classics uh and uh maybe slightly what we what we've called LSD promiscuous like LSD mm-hmm. but a little more classic um I'd say I do personally um and 
noticed some similarities, you know, and this is totally biased in the LSD and mescaline experiences, but, um, and I do also see chemical similarities, even though um, mescaline is a phenylmethylamine and LSD is technically a tryptamine, but uh, uh, mescaline is known to have this like body load as well. Um, you know, like both somatic and uh, the, the mental psychedelic effects so like a tactile sensation which could be like euphoric uh tingly but it could also mean the nausea and other things um that might be more likely with mescaline than some of the others yeah i read that um that people at least in the people who were surveyed who took synthetic mescaline were less likely to be nauseated compared to those who who like consumed san pedro uh mescaline yeah. distilled from the from the cactus and and the reason being, you know, it takes a lot of cactus to get to a high dose of mescaline. And this, I believe, is one of the reasons why um, it's not the most commonly um, sought after and talked about psychedelic in the modern days that we're in of this wave of the psychedelic renaissance, because you have to put in some work like um um, ceremonially, even like the cactus is boiled down and concentrated somewhat, um, either in a sludge or a powder, but you have to drink a fair amount of it to get, uh, like a full mystical experience. And, uh, or you have to take a ton of capsules if it's powdered. Some people even ceremonially, they'll put it in a bunch of capsules, but, but, uh, that's one way I've, I've, I've sat in ceremonies either way. And um, when it was capsules, I was handed like 50 capsules of, of cactus powder to swallow. Yeah, that is a lot. And, and so, I, had a, I had a GI um, trip as well. <laughs> mm -hmm. So apart from the GI issues, um, you know, what other subjective effects people experience? I think similar to, to other psychedelics, right? Spatial distortion, distortion of color, closed eye visuals seeing geometry, mandalas, things like that. Um, it can be euphoric. They can feel transcendent, connected to the divine. A lot of the same stuff you'd experience with other psychedelics. Yeah, and it is in the same class, um, phenethylamine, as MDMA. And uh, does happen to be considered one of the most empathogenic classic psychedelics, um, mm. like emotional connectedness, interrelatedness, oneness, openness. Um, so yeah, the typical sensory alterations with its unique mescaline signature, um, even geometries, uh, and the spiritual uh, significance, but, but um, mescaline uh, ceremonially was often done in in group settings, circles, like we were talking about in those teepees. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, it is uh, considered to be, um, you know, highly effective and traditionally used in these interactive, uh, like sharing circles. Which makes me think about the therapeutic potential uh, in sort of modern Western world of psychedelics in ceremony psychedelics in group contexts especially these empathogenic ones like you stated because part of what is healing is connecting to others and you can connect to the thought of others in your solo session but to actually be with other people in the medicine being seen being held being validated um being witnessed like to me that's that's a, one of the huge healing levers that we pull uh when we do work like this 
Yeah, yeah, we're wounded in relationship and we heal in relationship and um these kinds of medicines can be wow, just powerful facilitating agents um for that corrective experience of healing. Um uh, especially, you know, the wounds that we pick up from kind of interbeing out there in the world. Yeah. Other thoughts about the subjective experience, um, what it's like to be on mescaline? Yeah, like Aldous Huxley's trip described these like self-transforming amorphous shapes like uh, like stained glass on your eyeballs or hmm. um, through, the, uh, through the eyelids or something like that. Um, but there's a lot of varieties of it, but a lot of like what I pick out as the common threads are um, like kaleidoscopic experience. And uh, um, what people tend to say is that they become more, um, more significant closed eye than um, open eye. And we've talked and that, yeah, you can have synesthesia to a similar degree as something like LSD, especially when there's music on board. Right. I read that, uh, like other psychedelics, um, mescaline's got kind of a rapid onset tolerance period lasting three or four days after use. So, um, and despite that, you know, the rapid tolerance, it's, it's not really been shown to produce a lot of addictive behavior like other psychedelics. People don't tend to, to, go back yeah. to it repeatedly. Uh-huh. Yep. Yep. And, uh, comp- contrast that to like DMT on our DMT episode, we talked about how tolerance doesn't develop or resets. And that's why you'll see, you'll see ayahuasca ceremonies where it's like five nights in a row, for example, I've mm-hmm. been to, been to some like that, uh, you know, even therapeutically where we can get in and do like repeated deep work. Um, but yeah, mescaline is, is interesting because, because it is harder. It's not, um, as free flowing as people like growing their own mushrooms. These cacti take a long time to develop and you need a lot of cactus material to get to those high doses. So, um, um, with the body load or the, that doorway to go through as part of the experience. So it does tend to, tend to show up like we were talking about with ayahuasca as, you know, more of a ceremonial and kind of revered and reserved for ceremonial experiences, um, for the most part, uh, in my observation. Right. So with, with respect to the subjective effects, I found this really interesting survey study, uh, 2021 by Uthag et al published in the journal of psychopharmacology, where they surveyed 452 people who had reported using masculine and overall the, the subjects rated the kind of acute mystical type experience as moderate ego disillusion and psychological insight effects as slight. And the challenging effects is very slight. So most of the people who responded to the survey didn't have dark night of the soul type experiences or not physiologically very challenging things. Most of them had used peyote and San Pedro. Um, Just a couple of fun little facts here. Uh, Overall, the intensity of the acute mescaline effects did not differ between the types of cactus. So about the same. Um, And about 50% 
reported having a psychiatric condition and over 65% reported improvements in those conditions following their most memorable experience with mescaline. Again, survey data, this wasn't a controlled study or anything like that. Um, about a third rated their mescaline experience as one of the top five or single most meaningful, spiritually significant, or psychologically insightful experiences of their entire lives, where a smaller proportion, looks like 11%, rated the experience as one of the top five or single most psychologically challenging. So again, not as challenging as it was significant. And then there's a couple of stats on people reporting that their depression symptoms, anxiety symptoms, PTSD, and stress symptoms improving anywhere from 75 to 86% reported those uh, symptoms improving. So just a fun little study of about 500 people who reported mescaline was helpful. Yeah, I think, and I think that sums it up pretty well. The, uh, the lower rate of of mystical experience, although it's hard to to know, we're not talking about uh, like five dried grams of mushrooms when we're surveying people who have had their you know these varieties of dose and set and setting. Um, right. But uh, but certainly the trends that show up are less challenging experiences, a lot of meaningful, a lot of uh, transformative. Um, and uh, maybe a little lower on the 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 rate of complete mystical experience than things like say ayahuasca if you were to do the same survey or or high dose psilocybin like in the Good Friday exper experiment things like that. Right, right. And I, I will utter our, our typical disclaimer that we don't encourage anybody to do illicit substances. But you do hear psychonauts talking about mescaline being kind of a good place to start with uh, psychonautic explorations because of those things. It, mm -hmm. It's not going to screw you, you know, it's not going to screw with you as much as some of these other ones that we love. You know, another uh, anecdote I'll share with the big disclaimer of, I'm not recommending that you do this. There were these uh, indigenous tribes that would use mescaline containing cacti for days on end in lower doses, um, allowing them to, stalk hunt find deer day after day without rest <laughs> so mm -hmm. there was another another use that's kind of like microdosing, hydrodosing mescaline for the hunt right we i find we often <laughs> we often <laughs> come to that little tidbit when we talk about these psychedelics that like native peoples using it as a stimulant or as a performance enhancing drug i guess <laughs> for hunting and foraging um, I mean, survival. yeah, if you want to stay up for days on end because your survival depends on it, then go for it. Eat some cactus. You know, we humans are wired for, um, <laughs> wired in such a way that, uh, you know, experiences that promote survival become important, like mm -hmm. hunting food, which we don't have to do these days as much. It's a little different when we're hunting down pizza from little caesars or something like that but um but uh but yeah there there are evolutionary um reasons for that and as as well as the mystical experience and as well as the ecstatic bliss um that are are so these are meaningful and important things to us as humans um and i will say that uh um, there are even some studies about the anti-inflammatory properties of mescaline. Like it's thought to be a pretty potent, like maybe 5-HT, 2A, 
suppressing this tumor necrosis factor or something like that. But, uh, but uh, plant medicines have other entourage effects to, so that we'll need to understand more and more over time. Yeah, the entourage effects. I always get curious about plant medicines and, and animal alkaloids, um, just because of how many different things are in there. Because you, you, with with scientific tools, we can isolate, extract the psychedelic molecule, the compound that causes the psychedelic experience. But then you might miss out on what was maybe some of those entourage effects. I remember, and I've said this on the podcast before on our five meo episode, and we were talking about the bufo and those poor toads and leaving them alone. Mm-hmm. Um, then when I talked to Hamilton Morris about it, you know, he made the case that, uh, the other alkaloids present in the venom weren't helpful to the experience and that he isolated them all, took them himself in true Hamilton Morris fashion. And, uh, they were just nauseating, but it makes me wonder with other plants, you look at the cannabis industry and how the cannabis plant has been hybridized and, uh, different terpenes and like, there's all these different all this different stuff to use a, a scientifically technical term um, that can contribute to the experience. I, I wonder what we might be missing out if we just extract or just use synthetic mescaline, for example. Yeah, that's the same reason why our our uh, colleagues in the numinous bioscience lab are are hard at work um, trying to. Um, bring naturally derived psilocybin products to light that still follow that uh, those GMP good manufacturing practices that would be suitable for like research and clinical use um, while honoring like the wisdom of nature that uh, we've unfortunately had to uh, had to filter out in order to jump through some of these initial hoops in the in the modern renaissance. Yeah, when we talk about the indigenous wisdom uh, and wisdom of nature, speaking of the cactus, it makes me think of conservation efforts. You know, like peyote becomes super popular. All of a sudden, there are no more peyote or San Pedro cactuses because that was one of the concerns with the frogs is that they would drive them to extinction because of the popularity of the medicine. Yep, yep, it's true. Well, um I think uh, we've covered a lot of mescaline ground. Anything else mm-hmm. you wanted to share, Steve? No, I think we covered it as usual, exhaustive and thorough. Mm-hmm. Appreciate your read. Hope you have a good weekend. Yeah. Likewise. Have a good one. Talk to you soon. Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Numinous, a mental wellness company committed to tackling the global mental health crisis by delivering best-in-class psychedelic-assisted therapies, contributing to the body of primary and clinical psychedelic research, and fostering healing through community connection and social responsibility. You can learn more about Numinous at Numinous.com. That's N-U-M-I-N-U-S.com. If you enjoyed the show today and you want to support us, here's how you do it. Rate and review the show on platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Subscribe to the Numinous YouTube channel, like the videos, and share it. Share the show or clips of the show with someone that you think will enjoy it. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others, and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So 
If you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.